HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum from the Brooklyn Kitchen. Join me every Wednesday as I talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Please take a moment to like the show on iTunes, if you in fact like it, and please reach out if you have any questions. You can find me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at the Foodballer. We have one more week left in this season here at Heritage, and then we'll be taking a brief hiatus. The summer season will start back up uh, May 7th, so the first Feast Your Ears in the new season will be May 10th. Today is episode number 69 of Feast Your Ears, and I'm very pleased to be joined by Leah Archibald, who is the executive director of the Evergreen Exchange, North Brooklyn's number one resource for industrial businesses. She's also the lead singer and songwriter for Wide Right, which is, uh, I hope I'm describing it okay, Leah, a, uh, I would describe Wide Right as a rollicking, anthemic, 70s-style rock band. Sure, rollicking and <laughs> anthemic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks so much for taking your time uh, out of your day today in the rain. It's suddenly raining today uh, to join me here in the studio. Thank I'm I'm really happy to be here. So tell me a, a little bit about about you. Um, so what does that mean? What is the Evergreen Exchange? Um, tell me a little bit about sort of how how did you come? You've been in this sort of business services uh, organization world for a long time. So tell me a little bit about that. Okay. So let me. I mean, I'll start out with uh, tell you a little bit about what Evergreen is. Right. So I run a small nonprofit that works here in North Brooklyn that works with businesses in the industrial neighborhood so that we can help them grow so that we can keep high-quality working-class jobs in our community. So our bottom line is jobs, and particularly working-class jobs, manufacturing predominantly. Um, why do I do this, right? Well, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, and, uh, you know, got to witness firsthand uh, the the negative effects of deindustrialization, sure. um, and, you know, the 
the, you know, you can have all the beautiful architecture and fabulous world-class museums in a city that, you know, that you can cram in there. But if there aren't jobs, a city loses its vitality. Absolutely. So, so that's why, you know, I personally am really concerned with jobs. And, and in New York City, um, there, there's a lot of effort paid at drawing, you know, the highest paying jobs, i.e. finance, industry, real estate jobs. Sure. And I think that, the, you know, ones for working class folks, you know, <laughs> immigrants, people, you know, that have lower levels of educational attainment, they kind of get short shrift. And so that's why I do what I do. Great. Um, well, and I think it's important, and I think that uh, you know we're sitting right here in an area of uh, some people would call Bushwick, some people call East Williamsburg, that has seen an incredible kind of revitalization. Not you know in no small part due to people like Roberta's, where we're sitting right now, who brought kind of you know restaurants to this area. But historically, this had been a real industrial industrial neighborhood. Um, still is. I mean, there's, you know, we have uh, Boar's Head uh, across the street and Greenfield Clothiers is in the neighborhood and there's a lot of other places as well, but we've also seen a huge shift. Um, so I think that it's really important that we remember, and I think as you point out, that the vibrancy of the city comes from this intermingling. If all we have, I mean, if you know, I think of somewhere like the Lower East Side, which I feel like has been losing its vibrancy over the years um, as it's lost experimental music venues, totally. as it's lost its sort of old school um, shops that catered to, uh, you know, both Jewish and Puerto Rican families, um, you know, and it's become sort of this swath of, yeah, great restaurants, fun bars, but it's, that's really kind of a one trick pony. Right. It's, it's become an entertainment district. Yep. Right. So what can we do that balances all of these uses? Right. Right. Um, And, you know, we do a lot, as, like as you mentioned earlier, we do a lot of direct business service. We help businesses one-to-one. We do workshops and seminar series um, and then, you know, do one-on-one assistance. But a lot of the work we've been doing in recent years has been kind of more being thought leaders on how we can more adequately balance the competing demands for space in this industrial neighborhood. Yeah. Do you find that uh, the that the that aspect of the job is it about helping long-term uh tenants that have been manufacturing in the area to to help them to be able to stay let's say when their lease comes up or is it about drawing in new or what's the balance it's we we don't we don't sweat so much drawing in new we we don't have you you know firsthand how expensive real estate is sure um we you know any we've got really close to a zero percent vacancy rate in the industrial neighborhood so you know business attraction isn't really our scene got it um, business retention is um, so you know helping folks um, find spaces locally that they can grow into if they're expanding, or helping a business that's growing kind of rethink, for example, their their plant layout right. to um, to optimize the space that they've already got. And more recently, we've been helping people, you know, rethink. A local planning code, figure out how they can build higher, maybe right. move their offices off the ground floor, move the offices upstairs, and then expand their production on the ground floor. A lot of it, though, is just general overall advocacy sure. to impress upon the decision makers, the powers that be, the chattering class, that it's really worth helping these businesses and keeping these jobs here because 
you know, a really significant portion of our city's population depends on them. Yeah, and I, and I think it's important, and I hope listeners that you kind of uh, that, that the takeaway of of this conversation is that there are, and Evergreen's not the only one. That no. there are groups like this all over the city, and in fact, all over the country, who are doing this kind of you know really undercover, almost like you know backroom kind of advocacy to really help businesses. And if you are a business owner uh, in the neighborhood and you need help with industrial space, by all means, reach out to Evergreen. Um, but it's also worth just understanding if you live in the neighborhood that, you know, the reason that there's no right turn in certain places or the reason that, you know, streets get changed from one way to two way, a lot of that has to do with the work that Leah does. Sure. The, um, right out here, as I was, I was walking up, you can't park near the corner over here. Why? So that the gigantic 54-foot trucks can make the turn without smashing your car. Right. <laughs> you know? It's, it's really for your own good. Right. <laughs> it might seem an inconvenience as you're circling looking for a parking spot, right. but trust me, it's for your own good. Yeah. I've seen it happen. So have I. And, and the other thing that happens, of course, is that it snarls traffic when the truck can't make the turn, if they don't, even if they don't hit the car and the car's parked there, and then you know, every, nobody wins. No. Basically, is, is what happens, and right. and it does you know it does keep the city uh, as we said earlier it does keep it vibrant to maintain this sort of mix of people um, and to have people working in a neighborhood it makes a neighborhood safer if you have people who are there all day and it's not just at night or it's not just during the day you need to have that kind of mix to to keep the city sort of going. Um, I want to I want to switch the conversation a little bit to uh, to rock and roll. Right on, you know. food and rock and roll and are and literally roll. two of my favorite subjects. <laughs> so you uh, you currently lead a band called Wide Right yep. that has been around now for sixteen years. That's a long time. Uh, congratulations, that's a that's a real feat. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to know a little bit about you know I know that you have kids. Um, you have a, a son and a daughter, seventeen and twenty, I believe, right? And. Uh, but you started the band when they were little. Yes. And you had a full-time job. And so, I mean, I, and I, I was, was in grad school. And you were, and I didn't even know that part. Yeah. You were in grad school. So, you know, I, I wonder if you have any, um, any lessons learned from that. I mean, I had a number of bands before my kids were born. Since my kids were born, I've sort of stopped playing music altogether because I just don't, you know, don't have a lot of time for it. Moxie just started playing flute. So, I, you know, we play a little bit together, but it's not quite the same. Um, but I can't quite imagine adding the rehearsals, the songwriting, the performing on top of everything I do now. So what, what led you to do that in the midst of all these other things going on? Mom needed a little time for herself, <laughs> basically. Yeah, you sure. know, really, because that was like, that was for me, mm-hmm. right? And um, and 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 not at the service of anyone else, right? So, but you know, you can cram a surprising amount of stuff in while, like, you know, your children are absentmindedly watching Disney movies uh, on yeah. TV. As I as I well know, I mean, I, I wrote all these interview questions this morning. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that yeah, same format. I mean, I would just sit there; they would watch whatever, and I'd be like picking away at the yeah. guitar. I um. I did a lot of lyric writing, like on on the subway. Yeah, you know. Um, but but also, you know, I I would also my I don't think my children or husband would say I was an absentee parent. <laughs> right, right, you know, right. a lot again. You put the kids to bed at eight thirty. A lot can happen after. Sure. You know, go to rehearse, go to rehearsal, or yeah. you know, in the evening, or you know, on the weekend afternoon. 
you know, it worked. And then, of course, gigs are at night and right. late. You can right. still serve them dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Sure. Did your kids come with you to rehearsals? And were they kind of like, you know? They're still, it's, it's really, it's shocking, frankly, you know, how little they care about my music. <laughs> you know, Sam occasionally would be like, how many songs have you written about me? I'm like, well, I told him there was a few songs he's mentioned in, you know, but, and that's like the extent of his interest. Kira could care less. I actually, she was home last summer from college and I was like, you know what, Kira, you know, you're my Dave Rick, the other guitarist in the band's daughter, Sophie, who Kira's friends with is coming to our gig. Why do you come? Sophie's going to be there. You know, come see mom play. Right. And she like came for like two songs (laughs) and I'm standing there, I'm playing and I'm watching, I'm like, just ghost just ghosted right, see you right. later Ma. they could care less right you know um gosh what if you did that to them when they were had a school performance or, if you just like got up in or, the middle and walked or, out <laughs> totally they, they might at this point they might understand i mean yeah, as we sure. speak right now my, my son is uh pitching a baseball game yeah. in in washington heights yeah. You know, but he understood it. Okay, mom. Because yeah. I want to see him 70 other times this summer. Of course, of course. And, and also, they're older now. I mean, they're adults, essentially. So yeah. it's a, a, little bit, a little bit different. When they were little, I did... They, they were... For a fleeting instant, Kira was interested in it um, um, in as much as it reminded her of the White Stripes. Sure, sure. You know, and it actually... I actually managed to get her into a White Stripes show, and she was wearing, like, the whole Meg White outfit, and she got to, like, talk to them after the gig. And, cool. So that was that's probably the beginning and end of any currency that yeah, I possess yeah. <laughs> with my daughter. Well, I, I will say that one of the things I really like about the music, having grown up, um, you know, listening to classic rock, which is, you know, was at the I feel like at the time was a way we referred to a time period, but really is a genre. Right. of music. Um, one of the things I always liked about it is that it was, you know, it was self-referential about kind of activities and events, often about rock and roll, about right. going to the shows, about performing, about being on the bus, about being on tour, all those things. And a lot of your songs, I like that they're about you and your life and they're about right. going to work and they're about the boss and they're about kids and they're about, you know, how do you deal with all of these sort of things being an adult? Totally. Right? And then, but you're singing about it, and it's a, it's something I think that lots of people can can uh, really connect with. I would think so. You know, it's um, it's like you know, married middle aged lady rock. <laughs> you know, but this is, but you know, certainly um, more people can relate to having a crappy boss yep. than say, you know, the angst of the tour bus. Right. <laughs> right. I would think yeah. it's a more universal situation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that was always one of the things that I sort of always thought was funny about those things is like, oh, yeah, your life is so hard. You, you know, I mean, you know, we all have the problems we have. Right. I mean, that's, you know, sort of how how life works. But um, do you have any do you have any gigs coming up? Yeah, I think we're actually going to play one here in North Brooklyn. Um, I I believe it's it's over Memorial Day weekend. It's the Saturday, I guess, the twenty seventh um, at the Gutter. Oh, cool, awesome. Yeah. And now the band is a the band is a three piece. Is that right? We are a four piece. Four piece. Got it. Yeah, I um, sing and play rhythm guitar. Uh, my friend Dave Rick plays bass. He started out in the band playing lead guitar, um, but he's really, really, really picky about the bass stylings for the music, and like all of the um, all of our bassists kind of shuddered underneath his personality <laughs> so finally he just like he's play bass. took play matters bass, right, his, yeah. right. He, so now he plays bass and his wife plays lead guitar, Colette 
Russ and and um and our longtime drummer, the one I started the band with, uh, moved to Boston last year to take a real grown-up person's job. So um, we have a new drummer, which cool. I'm really really excited about. I'm just I'm I'm excited to get kind of get it rolling again. Yeah. Awesome. That's that's great. And it sounds like you have even hopefully a little even more time if the kids are kind of off in college, Kira's in college. And that's that's my you know, that's my thought is like, you know, I'm you know, my my son is only going to be around for another year and then I'm empty nest. Right. Like you might as well fill it with rock Rock and roll. roll. Yeah, absolutely. You might as well. Yeah. So. Keep that in mind, everybody. When <laughs> fill your empty nest with rock and roll. That's the that's, that's the quote of the show. <laughs> that's right. It's a, yeah. It's right up there with "Have a good time all the time." Yeah. <laughs> My other favorite <laughs> saying. Uh, we're gonna take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors. When we come back, I wanna I wanna talk a little bit more about what you just said about have a good time all the time. the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and today uh, in the studio I have Leah Archibald from Evergreen Exchange and also the lead singer and songwriter of Wide Right. Uh, So before the break, we were sitting here behind Roberta's and we were talking about about happiness and empty nest and things like that. And one of the things I had wanted to bring up with Leah, Leah and I have known each other for a long time, and every time I see Leah, she's smiling. And Leah, you always seem to be happy. And I want to talk about that because many people that I know, whether it's in their life or their relationship or they, I feel like people in general are not happy. And we live in this sort of world where there's the rat race of New York and you're sort of being ground up by the cogs of, you know, of, of 
the world and of industry and and of your life and you always seem to be really happy and i i and you know i'm i'm interested to know sort of about that you seem very happy with your work i am i'm i'm actually really psyched like i i i really like the work i do um it's uh i feel like i'm employing my skills and personality to make a difference where it matters and I can see you know over the years there are everywhere I go in industrial Brooklyn I helped that guy or we helped this right. like you can see yeah. people you've helped you rem- I remember it all so you feel like you're making a difference in other people's lives and of course by extension you know helping keep more job opportunities yeah. in the neighborhood so that makes me feel really effective um, and you know I've been uh, really fortunate but mostly I'm a bit of a simpleton. <laughs> I mean, like flat out. I'm like, like I'm really as, you know, as perceived. I'm kind <laughs> of that. I'm, I'm not. There's no, you know, tumultuous uh, inner personality. Sure. I'm not conflicted about right. anything. Um, I easily forgive myself. Um, I'm, you know, and I think like that's actually really meaningful to. You know, give yourself a break. Yeah, sure. I do. I do my best. Yeah, and and I and I call it a day at the end of the day. Yep. I'm not perfect. Yep. Um, and so I think that a lot of people's inner turmoil is, you know, this discrepancy between the bar they've set for themselves and yep. their perception of yep. how they're getting there. Me, I'm like, I tried. Yeah. You know, um, but you know, I've got, um, I got a lot of friends. You know, my kids are turning out all right. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, but it could have been like, but you know, the other, you know, the other thing is like, it could have not gone that way, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't know if you know, my daughter was gravely ill as an infant, mm. and uh, you know, she, like, it could have not turned out so great. Yeah. Right. She was hospitalized for a year, wow. and uh, you know, we had um, at least one near death experience. Um. And she ended up being okay. Yeah. And, you know, so, like, I'm going to say I was probably, but I, but the, the truth of the matter is, like, because I'm really built the way I'm built, I was, I was pretty happy then, too, sure. even going through all that, yeah. you know, BS. You know, it's, yeah, go easy on yourself. <laughs> and in the, in the words of the immortal Viv Savage, have a good time all the time. <laughs> Um, what do you love most about working with the businesses that you get to work with? Uh, there's a lot I like about it. Um, it's fun to meet people. Yeah. It's, you know, like there are people, people like me get a charge out of serving, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I, you know, if I didn't do this, I'd be serving in some other way. You know, I like to help people. I like to help my friends. You can ask all of them. You know, like I'm, I'm like the advice lady, and yep. you know, so I, it, it just it suits my personality, um, and uh, so I guess that would, that would be it. Like just kind of um, being able to serve, yeah. and 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 then you know being able to see the results of are their there successes. Any, are there any recent projects uh, in North Brooklyn with specific businesses that you've helped them sort of achieve something that you're really proud of? I can't think off the top of my head an individual business. I think um, 
in, in, in recent years, a lot of my own energy is going toward uh, this, this um, bigger ticket advocacy um, that, that is not really for one business, but yeah. like to benefit the business community as a whole. And, and that's probably uh, where I've seen my biggest successes. So I think the, you know, uh, the fact that there was such uh, uh, raucous public debate about the potential um, rezoning in Greenpoint Williamsburg around the, you know, the buildings at 25 Kent. Yep. And um, that would probably be the, um, I'd put that on the greatest hits sure. list. Not that we got everything we wanted. Right. We barely got any of what we wanted, yep. but it got attention and it got talked about. And, and really my goal is to just continue to keep the issues of manufacturers and working class jobs in the public discourse. Sure. So that's, that that would that's not that's on the greatest hits list. Yeah. One program of Evergreens that I that I want to make sure I mention is the Small Food Producers Network, um, which is a which is a fantastic resource for anyone out there who has a small food business, is thinking of starting a fall, small food business, um, who wants to manufacture their food here in Brooklyn and especially in North Brooklyn. Um, can you tell me just a little bit, speak a little bit about that program? Yeah, we are really proud of it. Um, this is something that. Um, I guess it must be like five or six years ago, you know, we kind of invented. We're like, hey, there's a lot of small food manufacturers here. We should do something special just for them. And, um, you know, it attracted a little bit of uh, foundation funding. And so we started um, these monthly meetups that you guys have generously hosted at the Brooklyn Kitchen. And, and you know, we make, it, we make sure that only small food manufacturers are in attendance so that it cuts down on a lot of like you know the suits and the service guys yep. that are preying on businesses so it <laughs> and feels, helping and helping, and helping and, you know <laughs> but it feels like more of a community yeah. for for and by them and that's really been an Im- important uh, uh component of the success but we've been able to grow that programming um you know Funders have really latched on, and um, we we just got a gigantic grant from the J.P. Morgan Chase Foundation to majorly expand it. So we've got kind of three tiers of programming. We've got the at the lowest level, the easiest way to get in is we've got these monthly meetups. There, you know, panel discussions. It's informative. There's networking, and then the next tier up is uh, we've got these workshop series, right? You know, so it's you know a five week long human resource boot camp where you enroll and uh, you come out with an HR manual or, you know, QuickBooks for your small business or inventory management. Um, And then the top tier of that is this executive peer learning cohort. So this is a really in-depth for just a small number of businesses, kind of our highest functioning ones, um, to meet once every month with a professional business coach and facilitator to to get one-on-one coaching, but to do this peer um, work to help them, you know, examine the challenges in their own businesses and get both professional and peer advice. And um, we provide this totally free of charge. This is, for, for, for one of those businesses to be in a similar thing with Vistage, who is the organization we're doing this with, would cost them 1200 bucks a month each person. Yep. And we offer it to these guys, you know, for free. We've yeah. raised that money. Um, so we are, I'm hugely proud we've been able to serve, you know, dozens and dozens, like over, you know, yeah. a couple hundred businesses yep. over, since the inception. And we're, 
I'm kind of so psyched about that that we're going to try and replicate that for design, fabrication, build businesses because we've got a lot of um, artisan, metal, wood, textile fabricators. So we're going to, that next up is expand that programming for those um, artisan subsets. I think that's great because, I mean, one of the things, certainly having grown the Brooklyn Kitchen over the last 10 years, you know, you start out and in many cases, not everybody, but you start out and you kind of think you have a good idea and you bootstrap it and you start but you don't really know anything and right. you know, lots of these people i mean i you know what i've found at least in the food business but i think the same thing is true in, in design businesses and in, in fabrication businesses you know you start with what you're good at but usually that means what you're good at is making things out of metal totally. it doesn't mean that what you're good at is doing hr when you suddenly have 10 employees totally or you know how do you make sure that your you know your record keeping is up to date or your invoicing is correct you receive all of the managing you know managing debt taking on loans not taking on loans all of those things you know you started out because you were good at uh, being a metal worker (laughs) or you were good at making jam or you were good at making you know charcuterie or you know or whatever it is and then suddenly you find yourself having to run a business which is a whole different Thing. Right. And so we're not, you know, our, we're, we're not talking with folks about design or how to package materials or whatever. It's really about, um, you know, building business skills and particularly with that executive peer learning cohort. Yeah. The idea is to 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 take business owners and turn them into CEOs. Yep. You know, so that's 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 really where our sweet spot is. And and um, there aren't that many other places folks can get this. Uh, tutelage yep. and for free. Yeah. Frankly, I raise all the money. Right. And, you know? and having taken part in some of this, both through Evergreen and through some of these other, other organizations like this in the city, um, I can tell you that it's totally worth it. Um, and that one of the best things I think that comes out of it is not just access to the people who are the speakers in these, in these meetings and in the, at the, the panels or the, or if you are part of one of these cohorts, but is the relationship that you then build with other business owners in the neighborhood and about, you know, the dumbest things. I mean, your roll down gate breaks and who do you call? Do you call the guy who put the sticker on your thing or do you, you know, so, I mean, I, this happened to us a couple months ago where our roll down gate broke. And the first thing I did was text the two other business owners I knew who have roll down gates. And I said, Hey, do you have a guy? And they had a guy and he showed up and he fixed it and was reasonable. And, you know, so even just having that kind of an informal network of people is invaluable. Yeah. Part of um, the, you know, we've been in existence for, you know, over 35 years. And I think part of the value that we bring is is creating the sense of community that people can plug into when when they need it. You know, because folks, they're in their business, they're doing their thing, whatever, they show up, they go home, parent-teacher conferences, whatever, that's their life. But you can plug into our events or just by calling us or emailing us and and it reminds you you're part of something bigger and there's more there's there's more people just like you with the same challenges yep. out there. Right. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to be a food business to want to figure out how you get, you know, your trash collection to be better or you know, like we lots of businesses in New York have all the same problems even if your businesses are totally different. Totally. So there's a lot of value there as well. Um, I wanted to touch briefly one of my one of my questions that I ask all my guests is about the first thing they ever learned to cook and uh, your note really struck me which is that the first thing you learned to cook was tuna melt. Uh, in in, in home ec class. In home ec. 
which uh, which you know I I want to know that uh, you know I you say that you know nobody should ever heat mayo and the tuna melt is kind of not I, I'm guessing that's not something that appears in your own kitchen very Ever. Often. <laughs> Ever. But what I'm curious to know as someone who, you know, I, I had a very small amount of home ec when I was in school. It's, it sounds like it was a little bit similar to you could choose a different path. And so I, I did uh, I actually did more sort of like marine biology. And then we also had an auto shop at my high school. I didn't really do a lot of the cooking stuff. I did a lot of cooking at home with my mom and my grandmother. Um, did you learn anything in, in the cooking home ec or was it really? I just... learned that what most people call a spatula is really a rubber scraper. <laughs> That's one of the key things I recall from eighth grade home ec. So in my school, it was a little different. Boys took shop, girls took home ec, Uh. right? So girls were not allowed to take shop. And uh, um, I already knew how to sew. In fact, like I had taken private sewing lessons as a young kid, and I was sewing, you know, garments that were significantly more complex than I would sew right now. Sure. Right? Lots of interfacing and, you know, all this hand-sewn stuff. Um, so I was like, you could go work for Martin if you (laughs) totally, I I know I'm always, I I could hand sew a buttonhole if I needed to. Um, and, uh, and you know, the, the sewing projects, um, for that class were stupid. It was like, you know, make a kerchief for your hair or something dumb like that, an apron. And so I'm like, I'm not taking that. And, uh, I petitioned the school to get out of sewing to take industrial arts and they weren't going to let me, and my my folks backed me up, and like they let me take electronics class. Um, however, I could not get out of the food module, uh, the cooking, because my mother was like, "You gotta, you gotta learn how to cook sometime." Right. So she compelled me to take that one, but I did get out of the the sewing module. And what about your kids? Have they taken any of that? It doesn't exist in school anymore, right? No, they both um, they both can hum a few bars. Right. You know, if there's, you know, Sam is a champion quesadilla maker and has been for many years. Um, He'll make little inventions of, you know, uh, Kira, you know, she's if she's she does fine. If she's got like eggs and rice and something like she's got she's. She's building a repertoire. Yeah, of course. They're not going to starve. No, of course. And that's, I mean, I think that's sort of the, that's the goal at that point, right? Is to, is to not starve. I remember when I went to college, uh, I was one of, you know, there were 10 roommates. We all lived in a house together. And I think there were like three of us who knew how to cook. And everybody else, you know, ate bagels and mac and cheese. And that was like it. Totally. That was all they could toast a bagel and spread peanut butter on it. But that was kind of it. And then there were the others of us who, like, actually were trying to figure out how to cook. And, you know, could we cook rice? Like, what was that about? Like, <laughs> how, do we, how do we do that? When, when, I, when I was in college, um, the first experience I had, like, cooking with uh, a friend was I was visiting her um, at the house she lived in. And she was making a stir fry. And she took broccoli out of the refrigerator like in a head actual broccoli and it was like the you know she taught me how to make a stir fry but i was literally marveling you mean you it doesn't come in a frozen block like i had no idea like that you could get things that weren't iceberg lettuce and tomatoes fresh yeah it was crazy Well, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're seeing, a, you know, we, we continue to see, I think, a, you know, we're, I guess we're, I don't know if they knew they were in the Renaissance 
like when the Renaissance happened, right? <laughs> we talk about it now, but I feel like we're in it now with, with food for sure. And, you know, I mean, my kids are growing up, you know, knowing what ramps are and, you know, loving to eat mushrooms. When we go to the farmer's market, Moxie wants to buy the, you know, different color oyster mushrooms and she knows what those are. And I'm, you know, I'm really interested to see what that looks like 15 years down the line. What is their experience like? It's going and they'll be much more adventurous eaters. Yeah. You know, um, you know, my son in particular, uh, he's a generally risk averse dude. Um, doesn't like roller coasters or being jostled or anything. Um, but he approaches food from the, the viewpoint of this must be good rather than, I don't know if this is good. Yeah. You know, so he assumes anything someone's going to put in front of him is good. Sure, because some effort went into it and they, they made it for him. And they're much, they're, you know, and even Kira, who's not such an adventurous eater, but she did a semester abroad in Europe. Man, she really tried. Yeah. She, I watched her. She really, she really, she, she ate everything. She tried. So I got to, you know. I got to give her that. So as a musician uh, who's spent, you know, spent some time playing around in the city, uh, do you have a do you have a favorite venue to perform in either that's still around or not? (sighs) That's the thing. You know, we 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 had this like five year hiatus. So we were gigging a lot, you know, um, at like Southpaw, um, Mercury Lounge, uh, you know, kind of those. So like I would have to say Southpaw would have been my absolute favorite. I mean, we were friends friends with the owners, friends with the bar oh, staff, great friends with the too. sound guys, yeah. you know, it was, I like literally I could just leave my gear there and go out drinking and take the B 63 bus home and just go get it the next day. Right. You know? So it was like, it was a real home base. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I miss that, you know, now in, you know, Mach two, Mach tiny where, <laughs> you know, like it used to be like we could, you know, get a really good crowd in yeah. a large in a venue that size. Now I'm like hoping for, we're hoping for 30 people at Hank's. Yeah. You know, so now Hank's. Sure. I've downsized. Yeah. yeah. You know. That's good. Uh, you know, it may grow again, right? I mean, that's, you know, it takes, a, I mean, as a working musician, you have to build that following. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's hard and it's different now. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I'm not getting any younger, which means that my friends aren't getting any younger, which right. means the people who hear want to hear more stories about taking your son to baseball <laughs> games, you know, or, you know, the, the you know, the, the middle aged things I sing about are yep. not like so resonant to the sorts of people that go out a lot. Yes. Yeah. Got it. That was my problem the first time around, too. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite spot for a late night snack after you play? Yes, yes I do. I'm not much of a midnight snacker. Sure. Like, I, you know, I'm always trying to watch my weight. So, like, after dinner, I'm, like, done. Um, but my favorite thing, like, literally, my favorite thing in life, if I had to list, like, on, narrow it down to five or ten things, late night slice. Um, uh, there's a, you know, a regular pizza place, Joe's Pizza on Fifth Avenue. It's near my house. It's open late. So, like, late night slice. Just standing on there, standing on the sidewalk by myself, eating late night slice. That's like the best. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like meditative. It's it's fabulous. Awesome. Uh, one last sort of question about something that I guess is not um, not exactly related to Evergreen, but I recently found out that there's a group that is uh, advocating to rename the Williamsburg Bridge the Sonny Rollins Bridge. Really? And I want to know if you knew about that. No. So the story is that 
Sonny Rollins took a hiatus from 1959 to 1961 and lived at 400 Grand Street in Manhattan. And almost every day for two years played for hours at the center of the span of the Williamsburg Really? Bridge. I didn't know that. And apparently it was, it had to do, it was, there was an article in the New Yorker by Amanda Petrusic recently. And it was, it had to do with the fact he was so prolific. He, he released like 21 albums in like seven years in the 50s and felt like there were all these new guys, Ornette Coleman and John Coltrane, who were coming in with kind of a new thing, the sort of, you know, more avant-garde free jazz stuff. And he felt like he just sort of needed to like be gone from the scene and just focus on his music. And his wife supported them. She had a secretarial job. And every day for two years, he played in the middle of the bridge. That's crazy. I've yeah. never heard that. Yeah, which is very cool. Um, and so, I mean, I, I definitely would be really, you know, be, be an interesting nod, I think, for the city to, to do that. Uh, even if it was just in the same way that, like, streets have a name after a person. Right, but it's still totally. Ninth Street, but it's, you know, Tara Shevchenko. And that's not Ninth Street, but, what, you know, somebody's somebody's street name, right? Yeah, or, you know, like they did with the Brooklyn Bridge, you know, the Ari Halberstram on-ramp. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right. there's something, there's something. Yeah, maybe there. the pedestrian pathway could be like the Sonny Rollins Absolutely. pedestrian pathway yeah. or we, something. This, there's a million ways to yeah. to slice that up, yeah. yeah. So that's, I thought that was pretty cool. That's a really cool story. Uh, well, uh, is, do you have any anything else you want to you wanna bring up? Is there anything coming up with Evergreen or the Small Food Producers Network uh, or Wide Right that you want to mention before we finish up? Um, let's see. I'll start with Wide Right. We're going to, it's my fervent hope that uh, we've got about a dozen songs that haven't been recorded yet. Um, I hope to write a few more um, and then get into the studio for the first time in, in really a long time. That would be exciting and a good use of my empty nest. Yes, sure. Um, with Small Food Producers Network, we are working on our next slate of workshops. Um, so, you know, come... If, if you're interested, our website, ever, evergreenexchange.org. Keep checking it, and um, we're, as soon as we finalize um, dates and themes, it's, it will be up on the website. And then, you know, with Evergreen, you know, our big ticket, we've got our annual fundraiser coming up, and that's an all-hands-on-deck an all moment for our organization. But it's really to fundraise for, for that event is really important. It's at the Brooklyn Winery. A local cool. manufacturer. Yep. Um, uh, but, you know, all that advocacy that we pour all this energy into, nobody gives us any money for that. Right. The only way that I'm that we're free to spend staff time doing that is for the money we raise through our fundraiser and through membership. So um, it's it's a it's a pretty important activity for us, and it lets us do um, all the stuff that we believe to be right that uh, no one gets behind financially. <laughs> Great. Well, thanks so much, Leah, for joining me today. You can find more information about Wide Right at widerightmusic.com and evergreenexchange.org has all the information you need about Evergreen. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. A uh, big thank you to David Tattashore, who engineers this show every Wednesday. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, on iTunes and Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Instagram, at the Foodballer. Talk to you next week. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.